All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We've been making our way through the book of Acts in a kind of a unique way. We just finished the book of Ephesians. I'll explain briefly, but we've been making our way through the Acts, uh, w- w- the book of Acts in, in a really unique way. The book of Acts is a historical account of what happened following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to know what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? You go to the book of Acts, and it kind of gives a historical picture of what happened. And if I could give you a very loose outline of the book of Acts. It could be divided into two major sections in chapters 1 through 11. So there's 28 chapters totally, but chapters 1 through 11 deals with the birth of, of the church in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell, the spread of the gospel and the opposition to that from that church in Jerusalem to the outside regions. And then it culminates in this extreme persecution of the church beginning with Stephen at the hands of a guy named Saul, who we know as Paul, who happened to write most of the New Testament. So you can imagine what happens in the last half of the book of Acts. The last section of the book of Acts is chapter 12 through 28 is the second major section, and Saul, who's now called Paul, is converted. He's knocked to the ground by Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, guess what? You're going to be my witness to the Gentiles. And he says it in other places as well as Paul's recounting. And so the second half of Acts, or chapters 12 through 28, is Paul going to the Gentiles who are the non-Jews. And he does this on three different missionary journeys. So he takes three different adventures, different times it took for each of those things. And then after those, uh, we'll get there later, but after those, at the very end of those three missionary journeys, he has an imprisonment. And some people, it's broken up into a couple different things. But Paul goes to jail, basically, is how the, the end of Acts is written. And by the way, he writes some of the books that we've studied from prison. And so, on each of these journeys, he's going into these various cities and these regions and these establishing churches, preaching the gospel, going into synagogues, uh, trying to convert the Jews to uh, the new covenant. He gets a lot of resistance And so as we've been going through the book of Acts, when we reach the point, when we are reading through Paul and he reaches one of these churches or regions like Galatians or Thessalonica or one of these other places, we stop and we study the book. Now, sometimes those books were written way later, as you can see on this wonderful graph that's kind of hard to see. Um, But we have already done James, which is not written by Paul, it's by James, but Galatians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Corinthians beat us up, so we decided not to do 2nd Corinthians quite yet. Romans were saving because, yeah, so we went over to Ephesians over there, but basically as Paul is on his third missionary journey in that yellow section here, he ran into the city of Ephesus, and that's what we just got done studying, the book to the Ephesians. And so when we pick up in in chapter, Acts chapter 20, verse 1, we're at the end of him leaving Ephesus. He'd been there for three years, and so it says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after that, encouraged them, saying goodbye, and set out for Macedonia. The uproar described here is describing what happened at the end of Paul's stay in Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, if you're uh, geographically minded. It's by the sea. He was there, as I said, for three years. He was preaching and teaching and sharing his life with these precious people. Paul was ministering the gospel in a powerful way to a hostile environment, a pagan environment, even. He was in the synagogues of the Jewish churches. 
He was persuading and he was reasoning, but it says in verse nine, chapter 19, verse 9, it says that many spoke evil of the way. They weren't called necessarily, uh, we weren't called, hey, Christianity then. They called it the way because they preached that Jesus is what? He's the, the way exclusively. We still preach that Jesus is the way. And so when he's trying to refute with people that Jesus is the way, some people became hostile and began to speak evil about the way. But Paul was having a, a massive impact. And as a result of that, it says in, in Acts chapter 19, it says that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And this is probably when the seven churches were planted in, in the book of Revelation. But there's just this massive work of God happening from that place of Ephesians, uh, of Ephesus. And so, so much so that the people of the city of Ephesus were coming to Jesus. Check this out. People were coming to Jesus. They once worshipped the goddess of Diana, which was the major worship center of that city. They were taking their scrolls, which were associated with their worship, and they were bringing them into pub- and publicly burning them. They were publicly repenting and saying, we turn from this. We're turning away from darkness. We're turning to light. What a great witness of the power of Jesus Christ as we talked about several months ago. The greatest witness is a changed life. The greatest witness is a changed life. You want to show that Jesus is alive? Let him be alive in you. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn towards Jesus. Come to the light. Burn your scrolls, so to speak. Amen? The gospel was impacting that city so much that people were no longer, they weren't buying idols anymore. They weren't doing the things they used to do. And we could figure out, put, pull that into modern context. Imagine so much of the industry that's based upon uh, carnality and sin nature. Imagine if that, the, the, the prophets all of a sudden got cut out of the bottom of that. How do you think the people who are peddling that might feel? Not so happy about that cut in the margins. And so it says that all the silversmiths who made this, this idol of Diana, they gathered together and they started a riot. And this riot was so loud and so crazy, it lasted for two hours, of, almost two hours, for them screaming at the tops of, tops of their lungs, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, it's like, see, the 12th man on steroids going crazy for two hours. I mean, it just was, go, it was nuts, nonstop, screaming, at the top of their lungs, the city is raising up. How would you like to be a Christian in that environment? How would you like to be Paul in that environment? This was why it was called an uproar in verse 1 of chapter 20. The word uproar is the same word used in Matthew chapter 27 when the people were crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They would not stop. They kept screaming and Pilate finally had to step away, put his hands in the water, say, I washed my hands of his man, innocent man's blood, be it on you, go ahead and crucify him. Obviously, he can't wash away his own sins. It's that, that same mad frenzy Paul was facing in Ephesus. And I believe Paul speaks of the environment he was facing in Ephesus when he wrote 2 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, Turkey, Asia Minor. Ephesus is probably what he's talking about. We don't know exactly. But he says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was so intense, they were certain in their mind that they were going to die for their faith. And they said, we can't even trust in ourselves anymore. We have no ability to get out of this. It just has to be God who raises the dead. How many of you are going through crushing circumstances to where you just have to trust God? Yeah. It's a difficult, hard-pressed place he's talking about. But there's incredible life and power in that moment. There's a, a unity with you and Jesus Christ that happens in those times. He says, indeed, if we felt we'd receive the sentence of death, we had to trust the Lord. He has, such, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he, is, he will deliver us again. And on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers. <laughs> I love that. He says, yeah, God is awesome and he is mighty, but he works through the church. He works through the brothers and sisters. I don't want to go preach in there. I already did it. Now, I don't know about you, but after almost being torn apart by an entire city, I might be looking for a different line of work. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, not me getting a different line of work, but about what, <laughs> but looking at our dear brother Paul, right? <laughs> looking at Paul. You see, ch- chapter 20 doesn't have a lot of doctrine in it. You read it and it's just basically his, his roadmap of what he's doing, where he's going, what he's saying. It's not like, do this, don't do that, and here's the application. It's just a bunch. And so as I'm reading this, I'm looking at it, and I'm listening to different messages and just kind of, it just, it just seems like we get to look at the person of Paul for a minute. You ever have someone you just absolutely admire in the faith? And they have moments when they teach you. They have moments when they're encouraging. They're walking alongside of you. But how many of you have learned so much just by watching them and observing them, seeing what they do? It's a great witness. And that's why I want to look at it here. Paul. And specifically, his love for Jesus Christ. And that was translated for his love for the church. Our vision for our church is to glorify God by love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Just simply, Lord, what do you have for me? Here I am, and you step out in it. And we see that in Paul's life. We see that he wanted to glorify God. He wanted to glorify God, to bring him maximum glory, to reflect him properly through his life. And he did this by loving God, and that is directly translated into how he lived, how he acted, and how he loved the church. It can't be be separated. And so, I run the risk of reading in between the lines here, so please test what I say against the word always. But I think we can see uh, Paul's deep love for the Lord and, and the Lord's people. 
here in chapter 20. So let's look together in verse one. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after that, he encouraged them <laughs> and said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. I don't know, most of us have, after having an entire city like rise up against us, I would be on the boat like sending a carrier pigeon saying, yeah, I hope that goes well for you. I don't know. <laughs> But he showed that his priorities were all about loving Jesus by his loving the church, loving the disciples, the followers. Instead of taking off, instead of changing vocations, what did he do? He sent for the disciples. He sought them out. They were still in the city. They were still dealing with the aftermath of everything that had just gone on. He sought them out. He sent messengers. Gather them to me, is what he said. I love that about Paul. He desired to bring people close to him in times of hardship. He sent for the disciples. He encouraged them and he said goodbye. I have a strong sense that Paul's main concern was not that he almost lost his life. That would be on my top list. Self-preservation. That was not his. But that his disciples, the ones he had spent three years making. And I say making because Jesus said, go and make disciples. They don't just poof happen. He went and grabbed them. He pulled them close to him after this traumatic event. These guys are going to live in that environment that he's leaving. That might somehow be discouraged or afraid or want to abandon what the Lord has called him to do. And to be followers and witnesses of Jesus Christ. He goes out and seeks them. He grabs them. He brings them together in the midst of persecution and rejection. I think Paul, immediately after going through a traumatic event, he's looking out for the church and seeking to gather them and encourage them and show affection towards them that they will be secure in their faith. What kind of saint is that? That's called maturity in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's showing his love for God by his love for the church. Paul's comforting others with the comfort he has received. This is what love does. It puts the concerns of others first. In pain's painful experiences, he reaches out to onlookers. You know, Denise, I didn't know you were going to be here this morning. And so I'd, I'd written this. Denise, uh, <laughs> not, not you, Angers. I didn't know you were going to be here either, Denise. But with Ed passing away, it was just being over at your home. And when I walked into the room, several occasions, obviously, and but each time how you were just wanting to gather people together and you were, the words that were coming out of your, your mouth as you were watching the one you loved go away were of hope, were of truth, and were of concern for others. And, and just, that was just, that just doesn't come about. When you are in a pressure cooker, when the city falls on you, when you love a loved one, th- what is in you comes out. Trials don't make you do things. They reveal who you are. And this is the kind of love that Paul was experiencing here, having gone through a traumatic event and, and letting that love flow to other people. Now, no doubt there's, there's pain and loneliness and hardship and all those things. That's, that does not mean that maturity is to say that those things are, we're just going to deny those emotions. That's ridiculous. But it's in the midst of those looking out 
to other people. And Paul gathered his disciples close. He spoke encouraging words to their hearts and he physically reached out and he touched them. He gave them a hug of encouragement in our cultures. It says saying goodbye there, but that is actually this, the word for actually reaching out and, and, and giving a holy kiss. Paul was that kind of person. He was a theological giant, but he was a guy who could give a bear hug. You could bear hug him, and he could give you a holy kiss on the cheek in that culture. You know what I mean? That's like Jesus. Children just wanted to run and jump on him all the time. Why was that? John, it says that his head was on his chest at the Last Supper. Do you think that was just a figure of speech? He was close to Jesus. Just something about him wanted you to be around him. And I know our culture is all twisted with touching and all that stuff. But there's a place for that in the kingdom of God. Being able to put your arm around someone and saying you love them. Being able to take someone's hand and say, let's pray. Guys and guys, girls and girls. Right? Keep it biblical. Not someone else's wife. I just had to clarify this stuff in this day and age. Right? And all the way, also, love also honors other people. You don't go give people hugs who don't want hugs. You know? But there is a time and a space to be approachable. I just love that about Jesus. Jesus was approachable. Paul was approachable. Yes, Jesus was truth. But he drew, the truth drew people to him. Don't be a scary Christian. I'm just like, I'm like the Old Testament. And I'm just like, never mind. Old Testament, God, we, we have a, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> he shows love to how many generations of forgiveness, right? We forget about that part, right? But yes, there's a standard. But at the end of verse one, it shows another way in which Paul loved the Lord by loving the church. It's subtle, but it's there. It's implied when Paul says, and really, if you're trying to get points on this, I'm not doing good, too good at parsing words. I was looking for a word that would describe the, that, that verse one. It just didn't happen, so have fun. But verse two, another way that Paul showed love for, for the Lord and for the church, it's really subtle. It says that he set out for Macedonia. He left. He set out for Macedonia. He was continuing what the Lord wanted him to do. But his heart was on going to Macedonia, not only to preach the gospel, but to gather a collection for the poor people in Jerusalem. If you recall our study in 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, which is in Achaia, uh, just south of Macedonia in Greece there. And he was really encouraging them to give to, to give to the church in Jerusalem because they were struggling through a severe famine. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, writing from Ephesus to Corinth across the little channel there, he says, now about the collection for the Lord's people who are in Jerusalem. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll, co- they'll accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I'm going to come to you. And then Paul ended up writing 
after this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he said, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people. Another way Paul showed love towards the Lord and his church was through giving. Paul was going all over, grabbing a collection from the churches for hurting people. This is not a tithing message. You know how often I approach that. Paul is giving his life, being involved so that the church would be taken care of, the church would be loved. And I see that in your lives, giving up your time, making plans, going places, making sure people have meals, people are hurting, are comforted, and loved. See that with Pat and Nancy. I mean, I don't want to steal your rewards, but my gosh, how God has no doubtedly worked through you in these days. But Paul, he showed his love by giving. Giving is sacrificial. It's always sacrificial. I know we live in a time where we reap tax benefit from, from giving in church. And, and that's, that can kind of mess with our motives sometimes of how we give and all that stuff. It needs to be spirit-led. God's love, the way it gives, is sacrificial. Let me point you to 2 John 3.16 verses. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. That giving was, that love was associated with sacrifice. You see, that cost him, right? Why would he do that to sinners who hated him and reject him? That's what love does. It's not to get something back. It's to give out of love. 2 John 3.16, kind of an interesting coincidence. I'm sorry, 1 John 3.16. Maybe that one too. I don't even think there's three chapters there, but 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You want to know what love is? It's that Jesus laid down his life for us. You want to know how that's manifested, how we show love? We lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what we do. Love is sacrificial. Laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Some Christians can't even lay down their time, let alone their lives. How many of you have been there? I've been there. Some won't lay down their money, guilty. Some won't lay down their spiritual gifts that are given to them and empowered by the Holy Spirit. They won't do it. They're mine. I don't have time for that. won't do it. The love of God is sacrificially giving. That God wants to take it out of the realm and this generalization of saying, I love the people of God. I love the church. He wants to bring it down to a specific action. 
It's got to it's come out in our lives specifically. It has to actually apply and, and happen in our lives. It can't just be this ethereal thing, this, this floating idea, this concept, this la-la hippie love. It's got to come down to actually loving someone and sacrificing for someone, giving for someone. And I know some of you might have been hippies. I apologize. I didn't mean to. Some of you still are hippies. I know you are. That God wants to take it out of that realm. He wants to focus it. Paul wasn't just saying, ah, I love God's people. He went to Macedonia. What would it take for him to, to go to Macedonia? Take some timing, some effort, some focus, some schedule clearing. It took him a year to get that collection and several collection notices to the church of Corinth. Like, come on, guys, come on, guys, come on. He went to Jerusalem. God's love meets practical needs through sacrificial giving. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We read 16, which says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, John does a lot of these in 1 John, just to letting us know how this love actually practically works out. And he's saying, if anyone has material possessions, this is one of the ways, and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them. Notice a brother and sister in need. A brother and sister in need is the priority or that's the focus. Brother and sister in need. How can the love of God be in that person? I'm not saying it's not limited. Obviously, we share the love of God with the world. But he's talking about starting at home. How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love in words and speech. Oh, I love the God of people. I love all of God's people, but with actions in truth. Oh, Lord, ouch. And that just starts to cut in on our selfishness, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit starts to convict with time. Or we start to go, oh, that guy, he's just trying to get something out of me. Or, you know. Paul is hitting the Corinthians who are unwilling to get it together to gather gather a collection. You talk about someone giving a tithing sermon over and over and over and over again. Why did he do that to them? He loved them. They were missing out when they held back. They were missing out when they did not give in love sacrificially. He was even using Macedonia and going, look at these guys. You were hurting so deeply. They gave more than you. Come on. Stir it up. Get in on the blessing. Release. Let go. Love deeply, practically. Where's your Macedonia? Where's your, where, what path of love has the Lord put on your heart? How is that practically working out? There should be one. John chapter 15, abiding in the Lord, letting his word abiding in you, you asking according to his desire and he gives it so that we bear fruit to the glory of God. It glorifies the Father in heaven. You see someone has a need, runs across your path. That's your Macedonia. 
See someone in the church, you hear of something. Start taking that before the Lord. Take responsibility. Lord, how can I meet that? Oh, I don't have the resources. We start praying. And guess what God does? He gives us resources or brings other people into our life to help meet that. How beautiful is that? We're not lone rangers here. <laughs> but there should be one. Second Corinthians verse eight. But since you excel in everything, he's, Paul's talking to that Corinthian church that wasn't doing it. I'm not talking to you guys, by the way. Of course not. I'm not talking to me here. But he says, since you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in complete earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, since you excel in all those things, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. The grace of giving. He's going to explain what the grace of giving is. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, the Macedonians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, this is the grace, that though he was rich, how rich was the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity? Rich is a dumb word to describe how rich he was. Doesn't even, can't even imagine he is, he was, he is to come. That's our Jesus. He was rich, yet for your sakes, put your name in there, he became poor, impoverished. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then you read Ephesians chapter 1. And where are you seated? In the heavensly with Christ, with Christ Jesus. All that, that's you now. That's you. He loves you. The cross, the cross, the cross. Dying to ourselves that others might live. Giving, yes, financially to someone who needs it, but of our time and our energy, our resources, putting our lives and our calendars around the kingdom. Not that we're all called to be in a pulpit or go on mission fields, but we're preoccupied with the things of the Lord of loving people. And fight. What do you have for me today? That's not my deal, Lord. I'm not going to get up there and be, you know, teaching Bible studies and stuff, but I tell you what, I have the gift of mercy. Oh, Lord, let me give the gift of mercy the gift of help, whatever it is, however God's created you and made you in the body of Christ. Don't withhold. Love Christ deeply by giving to your brothers and sisters. Don't withhold. You withhold, you lose out. Collection notice, collection notice, collection notice. You're missing out. As you give, God continues to empower and give more. Paul sacrificially gave because he loved Jesus and therefore loved the church. And lastly, um, he traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. And that's next week. Paul is traveling. He spoke many words to encourage people. 
many words of encouragement. How many of you need one word of encouragement and you're good to go for a while? I don't know about you, but I need to be repeatedly reminded of truth. I need to be repeatedly reminded that God's walking by my side. I need to be repeatedly reminded of his goodness and his grace and, and what I've done is not who I will be. He's, we're on a path and let's go. I, that's just constantly. And Paul spent time with people, teaching them, loving them, admonishing, encouraging, coaching. That's the, kind of all in that one word, encouragement. So we got a lot to go there. So let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you very much, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we have people in this church, Lord, who are stepping out with nothing in their hands to offer you, Lord, except for their lives. Lord, would you fill them with the grace that they need today to serve your people, to serve your throne? And I pray that for those dear people we brought up here that this, the motive for ministry would not be uh, self-glorification or to meet some deep need with inside, but would be because they love you and love others. Just let that constantly be brought into their thinking. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, we, we ask that that would just be the, our motive for living, the love of God and the love for other people. Loving so much, that we'd be willing to give and to sacrifice and to speak <laughs> at our own peril, at our own destruction, at riots, um, that your people might live, that people might be pulled out of the darkness, that your kingdom would go forth, that your name would be glorified in a dark place. We can't do any of this apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, empower us, overflow us today, with that spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ. And whatever we go, whatever we, we, we could go and get ourselves into, Lord, let it be done to bring you glory. Amen.